high school, I, uh, I remember uh, welding on a trailer in uh, my dad's backyard shop. And a truck uh, entered our driveway. A co-worker had brought my dad home earlier than normal. And I made my way to greet him, but noticed something strange. Uh, my dad's eyes were fixed on the house, but he was uh, doing this number Bodily, body wobbling all, all over the place, I was alarmed. Turns out he had vertigo due to an inner ear problem. Vertigo is that feeling of being off-balanced, like jumping off a, a merry-go-round and you're, you're trying to go somewhere, but the world around you is, is spinning. In Lamentations, you might say God's people have severe vertigo. They know God is good, but Jerusalem has been sacked. Exile has caused unspeakable pain, and now their world is spinning. And they stumble through the darkness, grasping for God's goodness over here while being faced with horrific suffering over here. We know the same vertigo. We too are struck by suffering that sends our world spinning. We know God is good, but this broken world's pain knocks us off balance. It raises questions, sometimes objections. Where are you, Lord? How long will you let this go on? And like Israel, we find ourselves stumbling through darkness waiting for mercy. That's where Lamentations comes in. Lamentations is a response to the fall of Jerusalem in 587 B.C. It exists to supply the faithful with prayers in darkness while we wait for God's mercy. And more of that unfolds today. Chapter 2 continues many of the themes chapter 1 began. But in chapter 2, Lady Zion stays quiet longer. Not till the very end does she say anything. You get the impression that after chapter 1, she's weary. Why bother crying if nobody listens? Ah, but somebody does listen in chapter 2. Even more, he enters into her pain. And he weeps with those who weep. And then offers her counsel. And only then does she muster the strength to cry out once more. But when she does, it's clear that her world is spinning. So there's progression with chapter 2. It unfolds in three parts. First, the author describes how thoroughly God's wrath consumed Zion. How thoroughly God's wrath consumed Zion. Chapter 1 explained why God's wrath came. To glorify God's righteousness in judging sinners. He gave the people a covenant. He promised them blessings if they obeyed. Curses if they disobeyed. And they broke the covenant. And now after centuries of patience, all of those curses have fallen on, on the city with devastating force. Here's the description from verses 1 to 10. How the Lord in His anger 
has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. The Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the habitations of Jacob. In his wrath he has broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought down to the ground in dishonor the kingdom and its rulers. He has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. He has withdrawn from them his right hand in the face of the enemy. He has burned like a flaming fire in Jacob, consuming all around. He has bent his bow like an enemy, with his right hand set like a foe, and he has killed all who were delightful in our eyes in the tent of the daughter of Zion. He has poured out his, fi- his fury like fire. The Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all its places. He has laid in ruins its strongholds, and he has multiplied in the daughter of Judah mourning and lamentation. He has laid waste his booth like a garden, laid in ruins his meeting place. The Lord has made Zion forget festival and Sabbath and in his fierce indignation has spurned king and priest. The Lord has scorned his altar, disowned his sanctuary. He has delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. They raised a clamor in the house of the Lord as on the day of festival. The Lord determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion. He stretched out the measuring line. He did not restrain his hand from destroying. He caused rampart and wall to lament. They languished together. Her gates have sunk into the ground. He has ruined and broken her bars. Her king and princes are among the nations. The law is no more. And her prophets find no vision from the Lord. The elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground in silence. They have thrown dust on their heads and put on sackcloth. The young women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. If you thought chapter 1 was heavy, chapter 2 is crushing. Almost 30 verbs fall like hammer blows in the first eight verses and God stands behind them all. He absolutely shatters the people. Verse 1 says, The Lord in His anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. You remember once His glory cloud protected Israel in the wilderness. But this cloud is heavy with His judgment. It's an angry cloud, like a hurricane. They aren't safe. Under this cloud, God humiliated the city without mercy. Note uh, verses 1 to 3, these verbs. He cast down. He has broken down. He has brought them down to the ground in dishonor. Once they had everything. They had the kingdom. They ruled above the nations as if heaven itself was on earth. And that's partly the idea behind the footstool in verse 1. Jerusalem, or the ark, was often called God's footstool. Nothing on earth could contain God, but He chose to manifest His rule in the city. It was but a footstool, but His rule was manifested there. But here, God intentionally forgets the city. He disses them. He casts down her splendor. Once He clothed Israel 
Like a bride with splendor. You can read about this in Ezekiel 16. But now he strips them of their royal clothes and their beautiful jewels. He also swallows them. He swallowed up without mercy in verse 2. You see, at one time Israel sang songs about God swallowing up Pharaoh. And now they're on the receiving end. The flood of God's wrath has swallowed them. In verse 3, the ESV says, He has cut down all the might of Israel. Okay, or better, He has cut down every horn of Israel. Okay, the horn of an ox stood for the military strength of kings and nations. Israel's hopes were tied to God raising up their horn, right? Especially the horn of His anointed. But that hope seems dashed to pieces here. Even worse, verse 17 says, God exalted the might or the horn of their foes. He also burned like a flaming fire, consuming all around. Babylon literally burned the surrounding villages to the ground. But here we're seeing that this was but an extension of God's wrath. Under this angry cloud, God also ruined them like an enemy. Notice the first lines in verses 4 and 5. He has bent his bow like an enemy. The Lord has become like an enemy. You see, Israel once sang of God's right hand in the Exodus. After God drowns Egypt's armies in the Red Sea, they sing, Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, it shatters the enemy. But now that same right hand is pictured here drawing back a bow and releasing arrow after arrow after arrow into the people. It says the Lord killed all who were delightful to the eye. No wonder the mourning multiplies. This situation here confirms what the Apostle James says. Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Under this angry cloud, God also removed the signs of their relationship with Him. God is holy. If anybody wants to meet with God, they have to meet with God on His terms. And so God ordained a meeting place and an altar to atone for sins, various festivals and the Sabbath, He also ordained special mediators like the priests and the king. And each played a special role as the people related to God. But many of the priests and kings rejected God's word and the people started treating these signs like good luck charms. They wanted the benefits of the covenant without the God of the covenant. And so God stripped everything away. Verse 6, he has laid waste his booth like a garden, like laid in ruins his meeting place. Basically, he smashed the temple down like a garden shack. The Lord has made Zion forget festival and Sabbath, and in his fierce indignation, it says, he has spurned king and priest. The Lord has scorned his altar, disowned his sanctuary. He let the nations overrun it. You see, there's no use for going through the motions of the covenant if there's no relationship with the God of the covenant. 
Perhaps a few of us need to hear that again. There's no use going through the motions of the covenant without a relationship with the God of the covenant. The motions will earn you nothing with God. You see, He is the goal. He is the treasure. He is to be everything. But Israel had forgotten that. Under this angry cloud, God also destroyed everything protecting them. Verse 8, He laid in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion. He stretched out the measuring line. Sometimes in the prophets, that's a hopeful sign. Like something's going to be built soon. But in this case, the measuring line was a sign of grave judgment. God stretches out the measuring line, not to build the city, but to divide the city up and haul it off. Gates, bars, everything is destroyed. Under this angry cloud, God also devastated their leaders. It says God scattered the kings and the princes among the nations. That's verse 9. Also the law is no more, and her prophets find no vision from the Lord. The king, especially with the prophet's help, these, these mediators were supposed to lead the people by the word of God. But now they have no law, they have no word, they're left with nothing. All the elders can do in verse 10 is sit on the ground in silence. And once the young women who would play through the streets in joyful processions at festivals and and wedding days, these women can only bow their heads to the ground. God has wearied the people beneath an angry cloud. Multiple times over we hear this phrase, in his anger, in his fury, in his fierce indignation. And it's passages like these that lead outsiders to reject the God of Scripture. I mean, if he's this brutal and this vindictive, I want nothing to do with him. That's the way they object. And so we need to be clear here. And I found... David Wells helpful on this point in his book, God and the Whirlwind. He says, human anger is often accompanied by malice, vindictiveness, retaliation, revenge, and hatefulness. God's wrath is a pure expression of His holiness. It's not an outburst of irrational temper. Temper, malice, revenge were seen in some of the ancient gods and goddesses. They could be capricious, bad-tempered, and destructive. God, though, is not. His wrath is instead about restoring to an unchallenged position all that is good, pure, true, beautiful, and right. And it is about removing everything that challenges His rule because it is bad, impure, rebellious, repugnant, or otherwise evil. Wrath is the way in which he upholds the moral order of the universe. And so when we read of his wrath burning against Israel, this isn't the work of a capricious God flying off the handle. No, the Lord's anger anger is controlled by his character. And it's used toward good ends. Restoring the good, removing the evil. At this point in history, that meant Israel suffered a great deal 
under the covenant curses. That's part one. The author describes how thoroughly God's wrath consumed Zion. But after the description, Lady Zion doesn't answer like she did in chapter one. It's as if the grief is just too much. But that doesn't keep the author away. Not only is he an eyewitness who looks on her and describes, he is someone who enters with her into the pain. He draws near and he weeps with those who weep. He doesn't leave her alone. Verse 11. My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. My bile is poured out to the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. Because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. They cry to their mothers, Where is bread and wine? As they faint like a wounded man in the streets of the city, as their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. So the child asks mommy for food. But mommy can't give an answer. All she can do is hold her child while she dies. The worst pain often comes when children suffer. It's not that adult suffering doesn't hurt. It's that child suffering heaps painful questions onto the already existing pain. What about their innocence? What about their helplessness? It's agonizing. And he's at a loss in verse 13. What can I say for you, he says... To, who, to what compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What can I liken to you that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is vast as the sea. Who can heal you? Her needs are too great. They're beyond his ability and he feels the helplessness with her. His only hope and her only hope is the Lord. But she needs to see that. It's not uncommon for people in suffering to turn bitter against God. Even to forget Him and seek out other helpers instead of the Lord. So he counsels her not to trust in the false helpers anymore. Look at verse 14. Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They haven't exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes but have seen for you oracles that are false and misleading. Now, in the history, God had sent them true prophets, and they exposed their sin, and they told them to repent, but they didn't like those prophets. They, for help, they liked the other prophets who told them that everything was okay, that you're going to be fine, don't worry about it, who said peace, peace, when there was no peace, who turned evil into good and good evil. And he's saying, don't turn to those helpers anymore. Also, don't turn to the nations anymore. Look at verse 15. All who pass along the way clap their hands at you. They hiss and wag their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of all the earth? All your enemies rail against you. They hiss, they gnash their teeth, 
They cry, we have swallowed her. <laughs> this is the day we long for. Now we have it. We see it. These were the nations that Israel trusted to help them. And God warned them not to trust those nations, but they did it anyway. They wanted Assyria and Babylon more than they wanted God. And so God handed them over. He showed them exactly what the nations were like. And that's the point of verse 17. The Lord has done what He purposed. He has carried out His word, which He commanded long ago. He has thrown down without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted in the might, and exalted the might of your foes. Read Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28 when you get home. Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. God commanded in His Word that every one of these things would happen to them if they rejected His Word. From the nations overrunning them to the children dying in the streets, it's all laid out there. And the fact that it happened should remind her that this God is faithful to His Word. You see, when they are in the midst of their exile and they're looking around at all the destruction, the people should not see merely the nations defeating them at the earthly level. They should see God's faithfulness to His Word at the heavenly level. They should see the Lord has done exactly what He said He would do. He has done what He purposed. These nations are but tools, in other words. Let them boast all they want. The true king behind these circumstances is your covenant Lord who is ruling by His covenant Word. And He's the one you need to trust. He's the only one who can take away the judgment. He's the only one who can remove the curse. And so cry out for mercy. That's the idea. That's where He goes in verse 18. He says in verse 18, Their heart cried to the Lord... A wall of the daughter of Zion, let tears stream down like a torrent day and night. Give yourself no rest, your eyes no respite. Arise, cry out in the night, at the beginning of the night, watches. This is urgent, in other words. There's no room for sleeping here. Your kids are dying in the streets, in their mother's lap. Pour out your heart like water, he says, before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to Him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. And so this representative here, he enters, he counsels, he pleads, and she accepts. We finally hear Zion respond with a plea for the Lord's help. It comes out, though, as more of a protest, a complaint for Him to act. She cries this in verse 20. Lord, or look, O Lord, and see. With whom have you dealt thus? Should women eat the fruit of their womb? The children of their tender care? Should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? In the dust of the streets lie the young and the old. My young women and my young men have fallen by the sword. You have killed them in the day of your anger, slaughtering without pity. You summoned as if to a festival day my terrors on every side. 
And on the day of the anger of the Lord, no one escaped or survived. Those whom I held and raised, my enemy destroyed. We thought we had heard the worst of it, but we didn't. Mothers here commit a most inhumane act. They eat their children instead of starving themselves. When God removes His gracious restraint, sin will turn the tenderest people into beasts. God warned them about this. This very act belonged to the curse of Deuteronomy 28, verse 53. But they ignored it. And so it's not a matter of whether they deserved it. They did deserve it. They invited these things upon themselves when they played around with sin. But the shock of the suffering has sent Zion's world spinning. To use the words of Christopher Wright, she accepts the sovereignty of God. Notice how she says, you have killed. You have summoned. She also accepts the righteous wrath of God against persistent, unrepentant sin. Isn't that what she confessed in chapter 1, verse 18? The Lord is righteous. He wasn't wrong to hand her over. So she knows the sovereignty of God. She knows the righteous wrath of God. But she also recognizes that God's judgment can operate through the agency of human beings. Human beings who, in executing God's judgment at the street level of history, are themselves guilty of the most appalling wickedness and cruelty. And so, yes, God used Babylon to judge Israel. And yet, they stand guilty for their crimes. And so knowing this, she she lays her protest before the Lord. Should women eat the fruit of their womb? Should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? Of course not. But only God can change that for them. She can't change it. Her leaders can't change it. The nations can't change it. So only the Lord can change it. Only God can lift the curse. Only God can defeat their enemies. Only God can remove His judgment. And so she returns to the judge Himself and says, look and see. He has ruined her without mercy, but her cry is for Him to have mercy. Friends, what about you? When the Lord uses suffering to expose your sin, or when you see this broken world's pain, do you cry to the Lord this way? We're learning the contours of lament here. And sometimes it includes a raw protest and complaint. Not in the sense of blaming God or charging God with injustice but in the sense of truly wanting things to reflect His righteousness in full. Wanting all wrongs made right. 
Some of the sufferings we experience send our world spinning. We won't always be able to answer why they happen. But God invites us to bring our questions to Him. And to turn them into prayers for Him to act according to His character and will. Mark Vrogup writes, Lament does not wait for resolution. It gives voice to the tough questions before the final chapter is written. Don't we find such prayers throughout the Bible? Psalm 10. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Psalm 44. Awake! Why are you sleeping, Lord? You ever talk to God that way? Why are you asleep? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? David in Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Revelation 6, the martyrs under the altar. How long, O Lord, before you will judge and avenge our blood? Model your laments after those we find in Scripture. As Christopher Wright puts it, God has broad enough shoulders to cry on and a big enough chest to beat against. Bury your head in His chest and make your cries known to Him. He is a good Father who hears. Also, learn from lamentations how to weep with those who weep. Study the contours of grief described in lamentations. See the loneliness and long, agonizing nights. See what it looks like for someone to have no comforter. See how it became hard for her to speak when she thought no one was listening. See how true cries are intermingled with her protests. See how the suffering disorients her and throws her world spinning. Study these various aspects of grief to help you understand one another when you're walking through grief. And then don't be afraid to enter and weep with those who weep. This person in verse 11 who enters, it could be Jeremiah. We know him elsewhere as the weeping prophet. A lot of the same idioms that appear in in Lamentations also appear in Jeremiah. So it could be Jeremiah. But whoever he is, he's certainly an Israelite representative who identifies with the people and takes upon himself their sufferings in chapter 3. We're not getting there today. See the vast greatness of her needs. Don't keep them away. Be like this brother we see here who enters her grief. 
It doesn't keep him away. Why? Because he knows that God is infinite in grace to meet every one of her needs. Sometimes we don't draw near to people because we see the greatness of their needs in their grief. And so we distance ourselves. What can I do? You can't do anything. That's a point. Your God can. You draw near. And you point them to the Lord like you see Him doing here. He's pointing her to the Lord. We need to be doing that for one another. Entering one another's sufferings. Looking and seeing one another's pain. Weeping with those who weep. Counseling each other away from those false helpers who look really attractive in grief. And then turning one another to the Lord. We can't let the sufferings of this life turn us bitter toward the Lord. Let's help each other discern God's hand in them. And then patiently cry to Him. And then finally, rest assured that in Christ, God removes our judgment and mercifully restores His people. Rest assured in Christ, God removes our judgment and mercifully restores His people. As I studied chapter 2, I was amazed at how many times in the prophets uh, God promises to reverse the very curses that Israel was experiencing. He's reading just phrase after phrase that you find in the prophets, but they're the total reverse of what you're reading in Lamentations. For instance, I'll just give you a few. In chapter 2, verse 1 of Lamentations, the Lord, it says, cast down the splendor or the beauty of Israel. But in Isaiah 60, verse 19, God speaks about the future glory of Israel. And He promises, the Lord will be your everlasting light and your God will be your beauty. God Himself would be their beauty. In Lamentations chapter 2, God swallowed up Israel in its, in its palaces. In all the habitations of Judah, he, he swallowed them up. Well, the same idea appears in Isaiah 25, verse 7 and 8. But now God promises to restore Zion. And guess what God swallows up on that mountain for everybody? Death itself forever. And He wipes away their tears. In Lamentations 2, verse 3, God's right hand, right? It worked against Israel, drawing that bow back to destroy them. But in Isaiah 41, verse 10, it strengthens him. He says, I will help you. I will uphold you by my righteous right hand. In chapter 2, verse 3 again, God burned in Jacob like a consuming fire all around. That same 
wording appears in Zechariah chapter 2, verse 5. God is promising to build a new Zion. And He says, I will be for her, that is for her advantage now, I will be for her a wall of fire all around. So it's like a reversal. They're all in God's presence and His wall of fire is destroying all their enemies, protecting them. In chapter 2, verse 8, he stretches out the measuring line to destroy the city. But in Zechariah 2, God stretches out the measuring line, guess what, to build a new city. And it's a better one. And it has all the nations streaming into Zion, submitting themselves to King Jesus. In other words, when we set lamentations in the bigger storyline... Of Scripture, the Lord answers Lady Zion's lament. He heard her protests, he heard her complaints, and he responds to her with mercy upon mercy upon mercy. And those merciful promises in the prophets, then find their fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus is the one Israelite representative who identified with our sufferings truly. He then made our deserved sufferings His own so that we would enjoy freedom from God's judgment in a restored city. I don't think it's an accident that the nations, in in Lamentations 2, verse 15, I don't think it's an accident that the nations pass by and wag their heads at Jerusalem to a city that's sitting under God's curse. The nations do the same to Jesus In Mark's Gospel, chapter 15, verse 29, they pass by and they wag their heads at a Jerusalemite sitting under God's curse. The big difference is that Jesus didn't deserve it. Unlike Israel, He was faithful to the covenant. He was suffering for their sins, not His own sins. The other big difference is that Jesus' sufferings mean we can escape the wrath of God. And we can know His forgiveness in full. Our curse was vast as the sea. But Jesus' sufferings unto death actually absorbed it all to set us free. Our sins weren't too great for God's mercy. The other big difference is that Jesus, three days later, took up His life again. And He did it to build the new Zion. The new Jerusalem is going up as we speak. We see outcroppings of that city. Where? In the local church. The present Jerusalem is still in slavery to sin, but we who are in Christ belong to the Jerusalem that's above, Galatians says. We've been freed from our slavery to sin and forgiven. So God's curses for us 
are over, completely over. They're over for anybody who trusts in Jesus. God's curses are over for anybody who trusts in Jesus. Even more, under the curse, God cut off every horn in Israel. Remember that? He cut off the might or the horn of Israel. According to Luke 1, verse 69, Jesus is now the exalted horn of Israel. God has raised Him up and exalted Him, and right now He's putting all our enemies beneath His feet. And one day He will return to lay them low for good, and death will be swallowed up in victory. That, beloved, is why we have hope in suffering. That is how we bring our lament to the Lord and don't have to fear His condemnation. That is what assures us in our vertigo, when our world is spinning, that God is good and that God is faithful and that God is just. We look at the cross and we learn this. It's the rock when our world is spinning. The work of Jesus reassures us that God will work His purpose even through suffering to bring about our good. If you're in Christ, the angry cloud of God's wrath has lifted. And the sunshine of His love is upon you every day of your life no matter what you walk through. The broken world's pain might keep us from might hinder us from seeing that clearly on some days. That's why we need each other. Reminding us of the Gospel. His Word says that His love is there. The sunshine of His love is there even on dark and cloudy days. We need to cling to that Word. Cling to His covenant faithfulness to that Word. If he was faithful to the word of judgment, oh, he will be faithful to his word of salvation for you. So let's remember that afresh as we come and eat the supper together and remember his cross and his resurrection life until he comes again. This podcast is brought to you by Redeemer Church, a community of believers in Fort Worth, Texas, committed to equipping God's people to delight in God's glory and declare that glory to our neighbors and the nations. For more information, visit our website at RedeemerFortWorth.org.